Please be seated for the reading of God's word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, Brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we pray, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, our risen and ascended Savior, you are King of kings, you are Lord of lords, 
And we pray this morning that you would be among us by your Holy Spirit and that you would draw us into the mystery of your gospel and this reality that you have gone to the Father, that you have opened up a way for us to pass through the heavens as it were and to be there as well, to dwell in your family, in the household of God. And so we pray that you would meet us this morning by your spirit, that you would help us to wake up, that you would help us to be present to you and to hear your voice, to sit beneath your scriptures and to open our hearts and our lives to your work among us, that you would be changing us and making us more and more into the image of your risen self. So would you do that work among us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So one of our favorite um, theological heroes and influences around here is uh, Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary, uh, a priest uh, in the middle of the 20th century. And there's a book that a guy named Michael Goheen has written on Newbegin's thought. The book is called The Church and Its Vocation, uh, which is a presentation of the missional theology of Leslie Newbegin. And in that book, Goheen writes this. The gospel makes a remarkable and bold claim. The goal of universal history, and therefore the purpose and meaning of the whole creation, has been disclosed, accomplished, and made present in the life, death, and resurrection of one Jewish man in the middle of history. This is surely not an announcement to be slotted into a private category called religion. Rather, it is a secular announcement and public truth. It is a message of ultimate importance for all people. But the gospel is more than simply a message and a truth claim. It is a matter of power. The end of history breaking into the middle is the advent of God's power in the Holy Spirit to renew all things. Think about that. The gospel the good news of Jesus Christ is a matter of power. What does that mean? Well, I hope it means something good because from where I stand, it looks like the church has a pretty big problem with power. I don't know how things look from your vantage point, but um, from what I hear from friends and neighbors who struggle with the church, both uh, what I hear from participant observers, if you will, those uh, who are members of a church community and uh, assessing things from the inside, and what I hear from more distant observers whose opinions are formed more by what they see or hear through public channels, I hear that that's generally how many see the church's situation, that we have a power problem. Whether it's the abuses of power by individual church leaders and the systemic cover-ups that have protected the institution instead of victims, or whether it's the church's willingness at both an individual or institutional level to compromise its own integrity and identity to align itself with political powers that promise to protect the church and further its interests, however you conceive of those interests, or whether it's the church's or church leaders' embrace of manipulative tactics that seek to control people's behaviors, right? Especially those of kids and teens, often through reactive or fear-based teaching and regulations, or whether it's the church's unwillingness to examine its own participation in unjust power systems that are bigger than the church but infect the church, compromise our common life and mission in the body of Christ, 
or whether it's just the church's susceptibility to the allure of celebrity power or wealth or influence or the possibility of going viral or even military and violent power in some of the darker chapters of the church's past and present. In the church, we have a power problem. And yet, what we discover in the scriptures is that for some reason, this problematic and often less than inspiring church is the group to whom God has entrusted the message and mission that directly addresses said power problem, which, of course, infects not only the church, but every human institution, and if we're honest, every human to some degree, right? Because let's face it, we all have a strong impulse to live into the world as opportunistic animals instead of as divine image-bearing, neighbor-loving humans. Survival of the fittest, if you will, and sacrificial love are opposite programs that are running simultaneously in every single one of us, and that makes us complicated, and that makes us inconsistent as a people, individually, communally, and institutionally. Yet in Jesus, we discover a way of being human that isn't complicated or inconsistent. In Jesus, we discover a way of being human that is pure love, love of God and love of other people. It's not self-preserving or self-promoting at all. In fact, it's a way of being human that is thoroughly self-emptying, that draws from and imparts to others a wholly other kind of fullness. And it's the way of being human that every one of us craves in the depth of our being, if we're honest. It's what we wish we were in our best moments. It's what we wish other people like as we lament the wounds that we nurture, that we seek to heal from as other people have hurt us and we have hurt other people. And what we're considering this morning specifically is how this better and more beautiful way of being human, this way of being human like Jesus and with Jesus, um, is actually a matter of power. That as we take up life as followers of Jesus and imitators of Jesus and ambassadors of Jesus in the world, that what we're doing is actually a matter of power. It's a way of being human that flows from a transformed relationship to power, and specifically, it's a transformation that comes by way of resurrection. So this Easter, we've been considering all season the significance of Jesus's resurrection from different angles, right? And we're embarking on this life and mission together as a newly merged church. Uh, we've chosen the name resurrection for ourselves, and so we've been reflecting on what it looks like for us to grow up into our name. And this morning, we come to this Consideration of power. What does resurrection have to do with the church's relationship to power? And what we discover in this passage from Romans and in the story of Jesus is that the power that animates the life of the church, but as we think of that both individually, right, our own individual lives as members of the church, and as we think of it collectively as the whole, that that power that is to animate our lives is none other than the Spirit of God. The spirit that Paul says here is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. The same spirit that we see is the one given to us by the risen and ascended Christ. The spirit of the risen Christ is the power of the church. 
And the life of the Spirit, the life that the Spirit empowers us to take up, is resurrection life, new creation life, end of history breaking into the middle life, right? That end of history that's broken into the world in Jesus, and that is the hope of the world, that hope we're called to share and receive in friendship and fellowship with Jesus and one another. We've said throughout this series that resurrection isn't some random one-off event in the life of Jesus, but it's actually God's new normal, breaking into the midst of an old, dying, and broken world, a world that's fallen under the tyranny of death. God unleashes life in the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're called to take up that resurrection life to become participants in it, which is beautiful, but it's really abstract, right? So let's unpack together with the help of this passage from Romans just a few things about what it means for us to participate in this transformed relationship to power and this life of the church that is to be animated by the power of the Spirit of God himself. And as we do that, I just want us to consider three things. What, what the church's power isn't, what the church's power is, and then thirdly, how we can participate in it, in it just a little bit more fully as we seek that transformed relationship. So what the church's power isn't. I think the first thing that this passage helps us see is that the church's power isn't like a guilt-trippy kind of power, okay? The church's power isn't a guilt-trippy sort of power that seeks to control people's behaviors by making them feel bad. Look at verse one of Romans eight. This one's worth memorizing if you haven't already. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most basic and important aspects of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That in Jesus, God has dealt so definitively with our guilt, with our shame, with our failure, with all the things that make us think of ourselves as bad or dirty or less than or unworthy or unlovable, that in Jesus, God has dealt so deeply, so fully, so powerfully with all of those things that the condemnation has been removed forever. In Jesus, there is no condemnation, which means that your self-condemnation, right? You know that. I know that. The self-condemnation driven by that inner critical voice, that's not a voice that tells you the truth about who you are. As valid as any of the critiques might be, the condemnation is a lie. The condemning voices of others, which we have grown to fear nowadays in unprecedented ways because of how outrage and public shaming have become so normalized in the age of social media, those voices of condemnation, they don't speak the truth about you and who you are, no matter how valid or invalid their critique may be of what you said or did, or what I said or did, right? The condemnation is a lie. And perhaps God's condemnation of you that you've been taught to fear your whole life, maybe. In Jesus, that is not something you need to fear. 
because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so our transformed relationship to power, it begins with our experience of this unbelievably beautiful reality, this reality of liberation from the tyranny of condemnation. You don't have to defend yourself because God has already done that for you in Christ. You are already freed completely from the condemnation because of Jesus. And so now in that freedom, you can open yourself to truth about yourself and others. You can open yourself to love, to be received and given. You can open yourself to truth and love about both yourself and your neighbor. And that truth and love is what frees us and will heal the world. So not only does the church's power not the guilt trippy sort, but also I think that secondly, we see the church's power isn't about law-based regulation of behavior or policing what people do, nor can it be commingled with any worldly or we may call with the Apostle Paul fleshly powers, be they political, military, economic, what have you. Just look at verses three and four. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that's a massively loaded thing to say. And there's a, so much in there uh, that could be and should be unpacked much more than we have time to do this morning. But I just want to highlight one thing as we, as we sit with these words, and it's just this, that in Jesus, God has done something the law couldn't do. And namely, that thing that God has done in Jesus that the law couldn't do is bring forth life in a world that has fallen under the tyranny of death. The law that Paul is talking about here is the Jewish law, Torah, which was always intended to cultivate life and justice and wholeness in the world, first by ordering the life of God's people and then by blessing all of the other peoples of the world. And that's why the giving of the law came with this command, choose life, not death. And what that meant in that instruction was choose to live with God. Choose to live in relationship, in love, and in obedience to God, who is the source of life. Rather than choosing to live away from God and trying to figure out some way of life apart from God, which at the end of the day is impossible. But as that story unfolds, what we see is that God's people just can't do it. Uh, they're too wedded to their own self-centeredness to entrust themselves to God. And so this law, it doesn't ultimately accomplish its purpose. This purpose of establishing life and a flourishing creation. And so what does God do? Well, this is part of the good news of Jesus. What God does is respond to that, that tragedy, that tragic human story, to respond to that not with some crushing judgment and condemnation, but to respond by coming himself in the person of Jesus to do what the law could not do, to do what God's people under the law could not do. 
And so now on this side of Jesus's death death and resurrection, our calling as the spirit-filled church is not to lean into the old laws or any new laws that we may devise. And if you've been around the church for any length of time in your life, you know how prone we are to making up new weird laws, right? Um, That was one of my more interesting um, inductions into the life of the body of Christ as one who came in as an adult was to be part of, to, to do youth ministry and just be exposed to all of the ways that Christian culture creates these rules for kids that come from nowhere other than like parents fear that their kids are freaking out and going to turn out weird. And so they create all these rules to try to keep kids in line and try to baptize, the, baptize these laws with the name of God, uh, but they just come from nowhere and they're driven by fear. But that's not the message that we steward, and that's not the power that we live by in the body of Christ. It's not legislating obedience, as helpful as any structure and guidance may be. The power isn't the law. The power is the spirit. And there's tremendous freedom in that. And that freedom is both a freedom from and a freedom to. It's freedom from the old tyranny that held all humanity captive and holds us captive, each of us, to some degree today, right? It's this captivity to our own self-centeredness. It's our captivity to our own futile attempts to grasp a life that we cannot possibly reach and to control a world that we cannot possibly master. It's a freedom from that, and it's a freedom to actually entrust ourselves to God, to love God and others sincerely, and to find in that mutuality of love the fullness of life that we and all humanity have always craved. So those are some thoughts about what the church's power isn't. What about what the church's power is? Well, if you look at verse 11, we see simply that the church's power is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That same spirit that robbed the belly of death and raised the Son of God is the spirit who lives in and among us, which is just another way to say that the power that is to be the animating life of the church is a power that can do what all the others can't. You think about all the things we entrust ourselves to, all the places we look for security or for meaning or for guidance, all the places that we look to shore up and strengthen our self-help or whatever. The power that is to animate the life of the church is a power that can do what those can't. It can actually raise the dead, and it has raised the dead, and it will raise the dead. And in doing that, that power actually dethrones all of the other powers that depend on death. All the threats. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the power of the church. And that same spirit, the apostle says, is a spirit of adoption. A spirit who makes us children of God and heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And it's by this spirit of adoption that we call God Abba, Father, which is Abba's daddy the intimate word, that the spirit is one of adoption. I just had the privilege uh, last week of teaching the coming to the table class for kids, and we were talking about what does it mean to come to the communion table? What does a confession of faith look like or sound like that is one of a child coming 
to the family table of God's family. And it's just simply, I am a child of God. I believe God has made me his child. I love Jesus because he loves me. I'm part of the family because he has loved me and adopted me into this family. And so we, we come to the family meal as children coming to be fed by our Lord, by our Father, and to eat and to drink with our siblings who have also been brought into the family. It's a really beautiful, powerful image, and it really is one that operates at the very center of our being the church, is our being the church as a family of those who have been brought in and made children of God, who also welcome others into the family. It's this power of being embraced. It's a power of being fully included, and it's one of reattachment, if you will, reattachment to God the Father in a way that rewires our relational being in the world as those who are embraced and who belong. And it's also transformative in this idea of our inheritance, right? We're brought into a family, we're adopted into a family where we are made, as the apostle says here, heirs with Christ of all that he rightly inherits as the risen son of God. And that all that is his, he is pleased to share with us and say, this is yours. Which gives us a whole different way of thinking about our security for the future. And it gives us a whole different way of thinking about what we may draw upon today as we seek God's help in walking faithfully that path to which we're called and of rising to meet the moment of whatever love requires of us today. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of adoption who brings us into the family, we also see here is the spirit who empowers us to do two really difficult things. The first is to put to death the old ways of being human the ones that don't fit this new creation life that Jesus shares with us. And the second is that it's the spirit who empowers us to endure suffering in fellowship with Jesus. If you look at verses five through 13, those verses describe the spirit's empowerment to begin to put to death the things of the flesh. And that's not just about like the cravings of our bodies, but it's about everything that operates according to the old creation playbook of survival of the fittest. It's about all of our self-preservation, our self-promotion, our self-defending, our self-obsessing, our self-centered, other exploiting ways of being human. Flesh is a very loaded, loaded term for the apostle. And it's not just about skin and bones. It's about a whole world that lives under a tyranny of death and life away from God and against one another. So it's the spirit who enables us to do that as we tap into the riches and resources of resurrection life to live new normal instead of old normal in the world. And it's also the spirit who empowers us to endure suffering with Jesus. If you look at verse 17, it's the spirit who enables us to suffer in fellowship with our crucified and risen Savior. And that's so important because the spirit-led life is one that often leads us into pain instead of away from it. Because God moves toward hurting people who hurt people. And God moves toward love-starved people who are difficult to love, like you and me. 
and the path of love that moves in step with our Savior and animated by the Spirit is not a path of avoiding the difficulties of love, but in moving toward those in need and all the places of pain that they're experiencing the brokenness of life in a world that is so marred by self-centeredness and the hurt that we do to one another. We don't go looking for suffering. Like we're not trying to punish ourselves. That's not what it means to follow the spirit. But we also don't fear the ultimate threat of it. We don't avoid it because it's hard. But in the spirit, we move with Jesus toward those most in need of love because that is exactly how God has loved you and has loved me in Jesus. So how do we participate more fully in this resurrection life that flows from a transformed power and that is animated by the life-giving power of God's spirit? Rowan Williams has this wonderful little book called Being Disciples that a number of us read together a couple of years ago. And in it, he suggests four practices we can take up to cultivate life in the spirit. Self-knowledge, stillness, growth, and joy. William says we cultivate self-knowledge by coming to God and saying, tell me who I am with an openness to hear your name spoken by God and an unwillingness to settle for what everyone else is telling you and even what you are telling yourself. We need to hear it from God. Something in our prayer, Williams writes, is about quarrying down to that level where we can hear that God is creating me and you now in this minute, breathing our names into the world, making us alive. And hearing that voice requires our stillness. It requires our commitment to stop our stormy and frenetic striving and grasping just long enough to be present to the God who is always present to us. It requires our openness to God. It requires our openness to being changed, our openness to growth and joy. Too often, Williams observes, the message we give to the world around us is nervousness about God rather than joy. And of course, there is the nervousness about one another that goes with this, which is another story. That's profound. That's a profound insight as we reflect on what it means to live in this transformed relationship to power as the spirit-filled church. Because all of this, as we have said and seen, is a matter of power. What power drives your life? What power animates our life together as a church? What power will we trust? And what power can and actually will bring forth the fullness of the life that we crave and seek, the life we long for in the depth of our being, the power that can be, that is and that will be the hope of this world. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit who dwells in you. We are children of God 
And we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received a spirit of adoption to live as children of God who cry out, Abba, Father, to him. Our Father, through his Son and Spirit, has has unleashed among us something new, something powerful and mysterious and beautiful and liberating and life-giving beyond our ability to imagine or ask for. And so the question for us this morning as we sit with this profound truth is simply this, will we open ourselves? Will you open yourself to the one who is making all things new, to the one who is creating you and making you alive even now, to the God who calls you by name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.